Section 21 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 The Evidence from Missing Links, Part 2. Summing up these preliminary observations on the theory that missing links are by no means so necessary on a fair showing of nature's ways and polity as might be supposed, we may submit, firstly, that the favorable variation of a species is a slow process, depending not merely on changes in the constitution of the included animals or plants, but on many other external causes, such as changes of climate and the like. Secondly, in connection with this first discouragement to the mixing of specific characters, we must remember that detachment of land surfaces will account for the absence of intermediate forms, and in cases where such forms have existed, they would be developed, as we have seen, in fewer numbers than the species they would tend to connect, lesser numbers implying few chances of either actual or geological preservation. But we may not forget that up to the present stage we have been merely contending for the relevancy of the indictment. Supposing our objections to the invariable necessity for missing links have been maintained, there yet remain very many instances wherein, as the evolutionists would freely admit, such connections require to be supplied, theoretically or actually, for the support of his case. The connected chain of life which the evolutionist postulates implies the presence of numerous links. The chief question relating to the exact stages or points at which these links are demanded, and this question again depending on another, what is or was the exact sequence and order of development? Suppose Mr. Browning to be as correct in his poetic rendering of the descent of man, as he is, judged by ordinary theories of evolution, absolutely incorrect, when he says, in Prince Hohenstyle Schwangau, that mass man sprang from was a jelly lump once on a time. He kept an after course through fish and insect, reptile, bird, and beast, till he attained to be an ape at last, or last but one. Then, according to the poet's rendering of man's evolution, his descent would imply connecting links between the amoeboid or protoplasm stage of his existence and the aftercourse, and also between the successive stages of which that aftercourse is alleged to consist. Fortunately for scientific criticism, poetry possesses an invaluable commodity known as license, and it may suffice in the present instance to remark that the sequence and succession of life indicated by the most psychological of modern poets are certainly not those held by Mr. Darwin or any other competent biologist. Man's descent from the gorilla, the chief element in the evolutionist's creed as propounded by popular notions and by a dogmatic but unlearned theology, is after all but the baseless fabric of a vision from which a better acquaintance with the facts of nature and with theories explanatory of these facts will most effectually awaken the unconvinced. The knowledge of what evolution really teaches and reasonably demands constitutes, therefore, the first condition for ascertaining what missing links are required. To bridge over the gulf between the gorilla or any other anthropoid ape and the human type may be the mental bane and lifelong worry of unscientific minds contorting the demands of evolution. Such a task is certainly no business or labor of Mr. Darwin and his followers, or of any other school of evolution. And Mr. Darwin, writing in his Descent of Man, and after a review of man's theoretical origin, is careful to add, quote, But we must not fall into the error 
of supposing that the early progenitor of the whole simian or ape-like stock including man was identical with or even closely resembled any existing ape or monkey unquote. we must in truth look backwards along the files of time to the point whence from a common origin the human and ape branches diverged each towards its own peculiar line of growth and development on the great tree of life thus much by way of caution in alleging how or what missing links are to be supplied the contention that even on the showing of the evolutionist the connecting links between distinct groups of living beings are not supplied even to the extent he himself requires is answered in the expression of mr darwin already quoted namely the imperfection of the geological record no fact of geology is more patent than that to use sir charles lyell's words quote, it is not part of the plan of nature to write everywhere and at all times her autobiographical memoirs on the contrary continues this late distinguished scientist her annals are local and exceptional from the first and portions of them are afterwards ground into mud sand and pebbles to furnish materials for new strata unquote. the very process of rock formation consists in the rearrangement of the particles of previously formed materials and the manufacture of new strata implies the destruction of the old with the included fossils of the latter. The geological series is thus certainly a detached and discontinuous collection of formations, interrupted by gaps of considerable and often undeterminable extent. Of the contemporaneous life history of the globe, during the periods of time represented by such gaps, we have no record whatever but even when the materials for forming a detailed history of any past period of our globe are found in tolerable plenty the record is never complete Quote, we can never hope says lyell in a most emphatic passage on breaks in the sequence of rock formations to compile a consecutive history by gathering together monuments which were originally detached and scattered over the globe for as the species of organic beings contemporaneously inhabiting remote regions are distinct the fossils of the first of several periods which may be preserved in any one country as in america for example will have no connection with those of a second period found in india and will therefore no more enable us to trace the signs of a gradual change in the living creation than a fragment of chinese history will fill up a blank in the political annals of europe unquote. add to these considerations the brief chronicle of a long and important chapter of geological history namely that soft-bodied animals and plants are rarely preserved as fossils that land animals are but sparsely represented in any formations as compared with marine forms and that even metamorphism or the alteration of rocks subsequent to their formation is known to alter and obliterate their fossil contents and we find reasons of the most stable and satisfactory kind for the imperfect nature of even the fullest records of rocks and of their fossils that man has been able to obtain but in what direction does the positive evidence we have been able to obtain lead clearly to the side of evolution and towards the supply of missing links in a fashion which even the most sanguine expectations of scientific order could scarcely have hoped to see realized bearing in mind that vast tracts of rock formations are as yet absolutely unexplored the present subject is seen to be one to which each year brings its quota of new and strange revelations and at the most any one record of what has been done toward supplying missing links 
must be held to be merely provisional and to serve but as a prelude to the discoveries of a succeeding period especially within the last few years however has the evidence of the existence of animals which may fairly be deemed missing links accumulated in a very marked degree and in some cases in a very astonishing fashion the reader has but to become informed of recent discoveries amidst the tertiary rocks of north america to learn the surprising revelations concerning intermediate forms between existing groups of mammals or quadrupeds which chiefly through the researches of professor marsh have been added to the conquests of science what for example is to be said of the zoological position of the huge dinoceros and its allies creatures as large as existing elephants and which from the examination of their skeletal remains can at best be regarded as intermediate betwixt the elephants themselves and the odd-toed ungulates or hoofed quadrupeds such as the rhinoceros etc dinoceros thus possessed two large canine teeth six small molars on each side and four horn cores besides a pair of similar structures in front of the upper jaw or again which rank save that of an intermediate position and as a veritable group of missing links can be assigned to the extinct quadrupeds included by marsh under the collective name Tilodontia, the remains of which occur in the eocene tertiaries of the united states for how else should we classify animals with great front teeth like the rodents or gnawers grinders like the ungulates or hoofed quadrupeds and a skull and skeleton generally like that of the carnivorous bears or once more what can be said of the affinities or relationship of the extinct toxodonts also from american deposits in which the characters of rodents are united to those of ungulates and edentates the latter being a group of animals represented by the existing sloths armadillos and anteaters nor is the list of extinct quadrupeds which fall into no existing group but present a union of the characters of several distinct divisions exhausted with the foregoing brief chronicle again drawing upon the well-nigh inexhaustible treasure-house of geological specimens in the recent deposits of the new world we find the extinct macrochenia connecting the odd-toed hoofed mammals with the even-toed division passing to the whales and their kin we find the extinct zuglodon with its well-developed teeth a feature unusual in living whales appearing to connect the whale tribe with the seals and their allies similarly the curious anoplotherium of the eocene tertiary deposits appears to connect the swine race with the true cud chewers or ruminants just as the paleotherium itself one of the first animals whose remains were disinterred from montmartre connects the pigs and tapirs with the apparently far removed rhinoceros the case for the existence of missing links wherewith the at present distinct orders and suborders of quadrupeds may be connected would thus seem to be very strong there would appear to be more than sufficient cause to account for the hopeful spirit of the evolutionist whose scientific prophecy that philosophic research into the nature of fossil organisms begun by cuvier in the now classical quarries of montmartre is destined to powerfully aid his cause seems likely to be realized when it lies in the power of the naturalist to point as well he may with pride to the perfect series of forms and missing links which connect the one-toed horse of today 
with the curious three four and five-toed steeds of the past one may overlook the jubilant tone of the evolutionist in the more silent and deeper satisfaction with which mankind at large is given to welcome the demonstration of a great truth it is of such a demonstration that huxley writes quote, on the evidence of paleontology the evolution of many existing forms of animal life from their predecessors is no longer an hypothesis but an historical fact it is only he adds the nature of the physiological factors to which that evolution is due which is still open to discussion unquote. but not merely in the highest class of the animal world have intermediate forms been discovered the case for evolution grows in interest when we learn that in the lower ranks of vertebrate life groups of animals separated apparently by the widest of intervals are now being linked together by the discovery of intermediate fossil forms the best known example of the latter facts is found in the relationship which may be now regarded as being clearly proved to exist between reptiles and birds were we to search the whole animal kingdom through for examples of creatures of thoroughly different appearance habits and general conformation no two groups would fall more familiarly to hand than birds and reptiles there would indeed appear to be no similarity or likeness between the secretary bird which daily devours its quota of snakes and the prey upon which it lives or reversing the comparison betwixt the unfortunate bird and the serpent whose stony gaze has allured it literally to a living death activity of organization on the one hand would be opposed by a torpidity of action on the other beauty of form and color by appearances frequently grotesque and often in popular estimation at least repulsive the contrast is one which in the popular view would be complete and perfect in every respect birds are warm-blooded and have a four-chambered heart reptiles possess a slow circulation a low blood temperature and a three-chambered heart which however in the crocodiles becomes four-chambered the former class is covered with feathers the latter with scales bony plates or both the forelimbs modified for flight in the bird are never thus used in reptiles the so-called flying lizards possessing no true powers of flight but being enabled by a parachute-like arrangement of their front ribs to take flying leaps from tree to tree birds as we well know want teeth and although in tortoises and turtles as typical enough reptiles a dental apparatus is also wanting the reptilian character tends decidedly towards a large and perfect display of teeth a closer inspection and comparison of the skeletons of the two groups such as may be made in a very general view of their bony possessions would reveal several interesting points of likeness and also of divergence thus both classes have a lower jaw which may be called compound since unlike the simple two-halved lower jaw of quadrupeds that of birds and reptiles is composed of numerous pieces united to form the single bone then also this lower jaw is joined to the skull not of itself and directly as in man and quadrupeds but by a special bone named the quadrate which curiously enough by a wonderful process of alteration and metamorphosis becomes represented in man and quadrupeds by one the malleus of the small bones of the ear such among others are a few points of agreement between reptiles and birds but plain grounds of distinction are apparent within the same region of dry bones a bird has never more than three fingers 
thumb, and two next digits in its hand or wing, and the supporting bones of these fingers, corresponding to our palm, are united together. The reptile's fingers are never so few as three, and their palm bones, moreover, are not ossified together. The merry thought of the bird, indissolubly associated with mystic forebodings of hymeneal nature, consists of the two united collarbones, such a disposition of the collarbones being unknown in the more prosaic reptilians, and the great keel, seen on the bird's breastbone, is wanting on that of living reptiles. Next in order we find that the sacrum, or bone wedged in between the haunch bones, consists in birds of a goodly number of vertebrae or joints of the spine, whereas in the reptile one or two vertebrae form the sacrum. In all birds, save the ostrich tribe, the two haunch bones are not united below or in front in the middle line. In reptiles such a union does take place, this union indeed being also seen in man and quadrupeds. In birds the tail terminates in a plowshare bone, giving support to the oil gland, the secretion of which is used in preening the feathers. In reptiles, no such bone exists, and the joints of the tail simply taper towards the extremity of the appendage. The axis of the thigh bone in the bird, like that of quadrupeds, lies parallel with the median plane or axis of the body, but in reptiles, the axis of the thigh makes an open angle of varying dimensions with the median plane. The ankle of the bird is peculiarly formed inasmuch as the upper half of the ankle or tarsus becomes united to the lower end of the shin bone or leg, whilst the lower half of the ankle unites with the bones corresponding to those of man's instep, the union producing the so-called tarso-metatarsal bone. It is this bone which becomes so greatly elongated in the waders such as the storks and ibises. As seen in the young fowl, the shin or leg bone bears at its lower extremity the astragalus of the ankle, shortly to be firmly united to the leg by bony union. The latter condition is where the astragalus has become united to the tibia or chief leg bone, the other bone of the leg or fibula being rudimentary. Such a complete union of ankle bones with the leg is not seen in any living reptiles. Whilst the latter have four toes as their least complement, birds have never more than four, the fifth toe being invariably wanting. And whilst in birds, the bones of the instep unite with the lower half of the ankle to form a single bone, in reptiles the instep bones, or metatarsals, are not united together and are distinct from those of the ankle. Thus much for dry details. The reader who has taken the trouble to follow this category of the personal characters of birds as compared with those of reptiles will probably find that the somewhat extended examination will assist his comprehension of certain abnormalities in the structure of several extinct forms of bird and reptilian life, since many of the characteristic features of each class just detailed will be found to have been curiously modified and often united in the missing links which bind these two groups of animals together. It may be firstly asserted that the ostriches, cassowaries, and their relatives differ from all other birds in possessing a flat, shield-like breastbone instead of the normal, keeled structure, proper to the class. Their merry thought is likewise incomplete, and their haunch bones are united below or in front instead of remaining open as in other birds. But he would be worse than an overbold zoologist who would venture to maintain that such points of difference meant more than the merest tendency reptile words. 
and the ostriches and their neighbors can hardly be denominated lynx which appreciably narrow the gulf betwixt reptiles and their bird kith and kin but presuming that the zoologist dealing with the birds of today refuses assent to the idea that he can supply us with missing links between reptiles and birds can the contents of the geologist's aviary be shown to be better adapted to supply the gap research here may proceed in two directions either we may try to discover if any extinct birds are nearer reptiles than their living allies or we may endeavor to ascertain if any fossil reptiles exhibit a closer relationship with birds than the reptiles of today we may very profitably discuss in brief detail both aspects of the case fossil birds make their first appearance in the upper oolite rock formations lying in their natural order just below the chalk prior to the oolitic epoch however and in the triassic rocks of america certain large footprints supposed by some authorities to be those of birds are found but these footprints may at the same time be those of reptiles and it is safer at present to hold their exact nature as undetermined and to assert that the first unmistakable bird fossil belongs to the oolitic period the lithographic slates of solnhofen in bavaria are rocks resulting from the consolidation of the finely powdered mud which once coated an ancient oolitic sea or lake bed on this fine-grained deposit belonging to the upper oolite series the merest traces and most delicate impressions of living organisms have been preserved the impress of even a filmy jellyfish having thus been brought to light in eighteen sixty one the impression of a single feather was found and later on in the same year a dr haberlein of poppenheim brought to light the fragments of a skeleton which was soon discovered to be that of a thoroughly unique kind this scientific treasure was duly purchased for the british museum and was named the archaeopteryx mercura the skull of archaeopteryx was wanting in this first specimen but the leg foot pelvis tail shoulder and some of the feathers are well preserved and by these relics the materials for a strange history was in part supplied of the bird nature of this creature no doubt exists in the matter of its feathers and feet it is wholly bird-like but it is also discovered to differ very materially from all known birds thus firstly archaeopteryx possessed a long tail exactly resembling that of a lizard consisting of some twenty joints each of which supported a pair of quill feathers then secondly no plowshare bone was developed the fingers united by bony union in existing birds were free and reptile-like in archaeopteryx and whatever their number may have been it is certain that these fingers were provided with reptile-like claws such as are seen in no living bird End of section 21. Chapter 8. The Evidence from Missing Links. Part 2.